welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Today, uh, we are going to look at a different passage uh, from Galatians. We're going to look specifically at Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. So let's go to Him in prayer. O God, our God, You have caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'm, I'm preaching from Galatians chapter 5, uh, but I want you, and you, you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. I'm going to start by referencing Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, which was one of the readings from this morning. And in that epistle, after a brief greeting and salutation, Paul launches, well, he launches into a lengthy blessing for what God has done. What God has done for us to the praise of the glory of God. Uh, Interestingly enough, in the Greek language, uh, that first passage in Ephesians is just one really long sentence. And it's a long sentence that is elegantly crafted and it is rich. It's rich with sovereign significance. It's also, as many of you know, one of the several passages that we see overtly the statement of predestination of God's elect. Paul explains 
that God the Father chose us in Christ, I know some of you have this memorized, before the foundation of the world. Now, such a statement clearly eliminates human merit. It eliminates initiative from, for our redemption. And it rightly directs the glory where it belongs. To God. But, but coupled with this magisterial statement of God's sovereign election is an oft overlooked purpose statement. God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That. Purpose statement ahead. That. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. God chose us before the foundation of the world. That. We should be holy and blameless before Him. In other words, the goal of our election is holiness. The goal of our election is holiness. And as this is the case, we should expect it to be an essential part of the gospel. Which it is. As Paul explains later, also you don't need to turn there, but if you're taking notes, later in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, purpose statement, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's the same language as chapter 1. The goal of our election is holiness. As Christ's meritorious work guarantees our positional and also our future holiness, so also it directs us to live as what we are in Christ. Let me repeat that because that sums up the Christian life. The Christian life is living as what we already are in Christ. As the Apostle Peter puts it, as He who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, to modern ears, this can sound, and here's some of the words that we may throw out, this can sound, well, it can sound legalistic. It can sound, well, a bit too idealistic. It can sound even, some might argue, anti-gospel. It's not. But, could it be that the topic of personal holiness sounds foreign because it has increasingly disappeared from our vocabulary? Because it has increasingly disappeared from our dialogue with one another. Both outside, but I would argue inside the church as well. Is personal holiness even considered anymore in your work? Is personal holiness even considered in your entertainment? Is personal holiness considered in your politics? Is personal holiness considered in your social life? 
Is personal holiness even considered in your worship? Four decades ago, four decades ago, it's hard for me to believe this, in one of J.I. Packer's books, he writes, quote, Ecumenical goals for the church are defined nowadays in terms of the quest for social, racial, and economic justice. But it would be far healthier if our first aim was agreed to be personal and relational holiness in every believer's life. Much as the modern West needs the impact of Christian truth, it needs the impact of Christian holiness even more both to demonstrate that godliness is the true humanness and to keep community life from rotting to destruction. (laughs) Four decades ago. He goes on to say, The pursuit of holiness is thus no mere private hobby, nor merely a path for a select few, but a vital element in Christian mission strategy today. The world's greatest need is the personal holiness of Christian people. (laughs) I'm just, I got to read that again. Because I I don't, you know, in books, I mark through, I've got a blue pen that I like to use in reading all my books. This is one of those where mark, underline again, star, need another color. The world's greatest need is the personal holiness of Christian people. And though unintentional, Packer's words, well, they sound clairvoyant today, don't they? Where holiness is not only absent from our public dialogue, but it's often absent from Christian people and the pulpit too. If we truly want revival in our land, which we as evangelicals, we as conservative Protestants, we like to talk about our revival, don't we? Revival starts, guess where? Well, if you're a student of the First Great Awakening, you know it starts in the church first. It starts in the pulpit first. Revival starts in our churches. Rightly did the great Scottish Presbyterian 19th century preacher Robert Murray McShane say, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. To which I might add, what a minister should long to see in his people is a pursuit of holiness. Now, to avoid confusion, let's define our terms. And let's make sure that we understand what we're talking about. And I just want to start with this basic question. What is holiness? If it's that important, if I can emphasize it that much, what is holiness? Now, the Greek word that Paul uses in the first chapter of Ephesians, which is translated as holy, that is the adjectival form of a Greek noun, hagiosmos. Hagiosmos, that Greek word, can be translated as holiness, but more often than not, in your English translation, you'll see it at, translated as sanctification. The English word holiness and the English word sanctification are the same Greek word that is translated as both, depending on the context. The word describes the state of being, of being set apart by God and for God. And that's key and in that order. 
The word holiness describes a set-apartness by God for God. And though the words are different, sometimes we will read and think of righteousness as holiness, and, and that's a good thing, actually. Because even though they're two different words in the Greek, they actually are referring to the same thing. One inward, the other outward. Holiness is our inward consecration to God, while righteousness is its outward practice. The practice of righteousness. Now, we may likewise think of holiness as two-dimensional. And again, this, is, this may be a little theological for you. Bear with me. We're just setting the groundwork here. But I want you to remember these two things about holiness. Positional holiness, that is our holiness before God, and practical holiness. Positional and practical holiness. Positionally, we are holy before God because we are pardoned and accepted for Christ's perfect obedience and substitutionary sacrifice for our sin, which we receive by faith. And so think about it this way, and here's the way to remember. When you think about positional holiness, you cannot be any more holy than you already are. Because positionally, our holiness before God is based on the perfect obedience and the sacrificial work of Christ. So positionally, you are perfectly holiness. So at this point, everybody just breathe a sigh of relief. Before God, I am holy for Christ's sake. By God's grace, through faith in Christ, we also are being made holy. What I call practical holiness. This side of glory, we are called, as Paul said to the Corinthians, to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, both body and spirit. And by God's grace through faith in Christ, we are, as I said just a minute ago, we are becoming what we already are in Christ. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is for those of us who are positionally holy by grace through faith in Christ as it is lived out. We are living out what we already are in Christ. But we do not do this on our own. How are we made holy We are made holy by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 tells us that all who are in Christ are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Which brings us then, you've been wondering when we were going to get there, that brings us to our passage in Galatians. The passage in front of you. And his explanation of the Holy Spirit's work in our holiness. And Paul says this, starting in verse 16, that we are to walk By the Spirit. Now, if you have that passage open in front of you, I want to encourage you to do two things. Put one finger on walk by the Spirit. Now, take your other finger and go down to verse 25 and put it under keep in step with the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. For those who are literarily challenged, we call this a metaphor. Right? This is a metaphor. What's the metaphor? Walking. 
So the metaphor is walking. Paul is saying walk by the Spirit. But the idea here and the use of his metaphor is, is that, and in case you don't know this, you cannot walk inactively. Try it. You, you'll, you'll never leave today if you try to walk inactively. You'll just sit here and we'll lock the doors and you'll be here until we come back. And I'm taking off tomorrow. You'll be here a while. Walking implies action. Walking also implies direction. So the point is this is that it is not passivity. The Christian life does not just happen to you. And you would say, well, now hold on just a second, John. Now I know the doctrines of the Reformation. And I know the strong Protestant teaching of justification by faith in Christ. And you're right. And you have no role in your justification. You actually have no role in what the confession referred to as your regeneration. That's an act of God's free grace. You're not involved. But in your sanctification, you are. And you are actively involved. The Holy Spirit within you is the one who leads you, enables you, empowers you to live this thing called the Christian life. We are then to, verse 25, keep in step. That is to follow the lead. In military, they would say lock step. With the Holy Spirit. We are to be led, stay in lockstep with the Holy Spirit. That's our sanctification. But let me ask, if we are indwelled then by the Holy Spirit, why do we continue to sin? Newsflash. You sinned before you got here. I pray you won't, but there's a strong possibility you'll sin today. There's an even stronger likelihood you will sin tomorrow, every single one of us. And so, if we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, why do we continue to sin? It would seem to me that the powerful presence of His glory would be sufficient to make me perfectly holy. Like that, right? Immediately. Boom. John, you're holy, practically speaking. And so the question that I have, and it's the second question I want us to consider today, is what keeps us from holiness? What keeps us from holiness? And I know some of you are thinking at this point, um, sin, and you're right, you're right, that's the easy answer. Sin does, in fact, keep us from holiness. But specifically, the enticement to sin comes from our sinful flesh. From our sinful flesh, which wages war against the Holy Spirit. Described beautifully in what I read earlier in the Westminster Confession, chapter 13. Talking about this battle, right? Paul says it, look with me in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. You should hear an echo there from Romans chapter 7, right? And by flesh here, Paul is not referring to his physical body, is he? What's he referring to? He's talking about the, entire, the entirety of this fallen human nature. And the entirety of our fallen human nature is dominated by sin. As I have said before, you and I, have never known a nanosecond of existence 
even in conception, without sin. Our sin nature is so prevalent, you have never known, I have never known, we who inherit the seed of Adam, we have never known a moment of existence without this sin nature which dominates us. It is that hereditary gift from our father Adam. I like to call it the gift that keeps on giving. That nobody asks for, nobody wants. And yet generation after generation after generation, we all get it. And as our flesh is characterized by sin, we can be sure it hates the Spirit's presence. This is one of the things about the Christian life. If you came to faith in Christ later in life, you probably saw this more drastically than some of us who became Christians at an early age. But regardless, what happens is, is when we come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and the flesh goes, What, What is going on? This is radical. This can't be right. I've got to contaminate. And so the flesh does every single thing that it can. And as this is the case, it's a battle. It's a clear battle. And and to be clear, don't deny it. Don't act like it's not a battle. Don't act like it's a war. It's war. As Paul admits in Romans chapter 7, here's how he describes it. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Listen closely. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want. Is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. How many of you could say the same thing that Paul said? All of us. There's no exceptions. We could all say that very thing. As an old man, John Knox, shortly before he died. So let me set the stage here. John Knox, possibly the founder of Presbyterianism. Does it get any bigger time than that? And he's in Scotland, and he's preached the word faithfully, and he's an old man, and you think at that point, that should earn you platinum status. No more struggle with the flesh. Or maybe like, you know, struggle with the flesh once a month. Well, there it is. I'm John Knox, but another month, right? He says this on his deathbed. He says, I know how hard the battle is between the flesh and the spirit under the heavy cross of affliction. When no worldly defense but present death doth appear, I know the grudging and the murmuring complaints of the flesh. (laughs) Those, Those grudging And murmuring complaints of the flesh, they reveal the lifelong determination of the flesh and its hatred for holiness. Christian, if you feel like there is a battle inside of you, 
You should. Because there is. In fact, as we grow in our holiness, the more apparent this battle becomes. We think differently, don't we? We think, well, if I'm growing in holiness, surely, eventually, the battle will sort of fade into the background. Well, that's not what happens. What happens is, is the more that we grow in in godliness, the louder the trumpets of our flesh charge. On and on and on the battle rages. In his commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther describes his time as a monk in his ongoing struggle with the desires of his flesh. And so what did he do as a monk? Well, he was faithful to go to confession every day. Or if you've ever read a biography of Luther, it was like more than once a day. Over and over. And guess what Luther found? Didn't help. He got more frustrated. And he'd try more and more good works. Surely the good works would outweigh the sense of a battle. And yet, that didn't help either. He was still struggling with the desires of his flesh. And it was not until he learned the knowledge of the battle that that battle does not necessitate defeat. Just because there's a battle and you have a sense of that battle does not mean that you succumb to sin. And when Luther realized this, he said, the more godly a man is, the more does he feel that battle. In other words, if you don't sense there is a battle raging within, you're probably not growing in holiness. And so Luther said to himself, which he liked to do that, he liked to talk to himself. He actually liked to yell at himself, which I find so fascinating, really. Yeah, he was, he was German. Yeah, exactly. That explains it, right? Luther said to himself, Martin, you shall not utterly be without sin, for you still have that flesh. You shall therefore feel the battle thereof. According to, to that saying of Paul, the flesh resisteth the spirit. Despair not, therefore, to resist it strongly. Fulfill not the lust thereof. And so, that there is a battle going on is true in the Christian's life. But now I want to add even better news. And that is, it's not a fair battle. It's not evenly opposed forces. In fact, it's decidedly lopsided. The powerful presence of the Holy Spirit is sufficient to perfect holiness in us unto the end. And the Holy Spirit will always have His way. Think about this, and I want you to be encouraged in this truth, Christian. Especially if you're in a moment of struggle. I want you to hear me loud and clearly. There is a battle raging, and for the true believer, the flesh never wins. In fact, it is a perfect record. The Holy Spirit, whatever the number is, the flesh, zero. The flesh never wins in the end. In Christ, we are not a helpless victim caught between two opposing forces. In fact, we're not helpless at all. Rather, all who belong to Christ 
have, been, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Look at the passage with me. Verse 24. That is a statement. Note the verb is in the past tense. For the Christian, we belong to Christ Jesus. And we have, past tense, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You, if you're in Christ... You and I are indwelled by the very same Spirit who resurrected Jesus from the dead. (laughs) The very same Holy Spirit who resurrected our Lord Jesus from the dead. And through Him we are enabled, but also through Him we are empowered not to sin. If anyone tells you, well, you know, that's, that's just too powerful a temptation. That's just too powerful a sin. Said no true believer ever. We are not helpless victims, but we are enabled, we are empowered not to sin. To to obey the Spirit's prompting to do the will of God from the heart. And knowing, and knowing that one day in glory, the battle will be over. And we will be like, Scripture says, we will be like our Lord. And so the third question I want you to consider is I want you to consider what does holiness look like? What does holiness look like? Simply put, holiness looks like Jesus. Holiness looks like Jesus. It is no coincidence that the Holy Spirit is also referenced in the New Testament as the Spirit of Christ. As the Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ. As the Spirit grows us and matures us in Christ-likeness. For this reason, you may recall that Jesus said to His disciples, it's better for you that I depart. Why? Because as one man, he was confined to time and space. But the Spirit of Christ dwells in all who believe. And through His indwelling presence, we are being conformed to Christ. Paul describes the evidence of the Holy Spirit in us then as fruit. The Holy Spirit is in us. Because He is in us, He produces fruit. The fruit of the Spirit are not character qualities for us to learn, but they are rather evidence of the Spirit's presence. Therefore, its fruit is a fruit of, think about this with me, the fruit of the Spirit is a fruit of Christ-likeness. The love of Christ. The joy of Christ. The peace of Christ. The patience of Christ. The kindness of Christ. The goodness of Christ. The faithfulness of Christ. The gentleness of Christ. The self-control of Christ. And while we see in Christ the perfection of His Spirit-wrought fruit, we look for its evidence in our lives as we progressively grow in our sanctification. Robert Latham gives the example in his book on the Holy Spirit He says that there was a man that he consistently ran into, had contact with in his ministry, who was, quote, notorious in many respects. And yet a fellow pastor 
would address this person as a believer. And Lethem was confused. He said, how can this man be a believer? I, I see these characteristics and I think, this, surely this man is a pagan. And the fellow pastor said, let me introduce you to his family. Let me show you what he came from. Let me show you how they live. Let me tell you over and over again of how I have seen him mature slowly, but progressively in Christ's likeness. <laughs> this side of heaven, evidence of fruit is witnessed in progression, not perfection. The Shorter Catechism describes our sanctification as the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And when I read that, I think, yeah, but sometimes that more and more feels like miles and miles. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's work, however, is consistently revealed in our maturity, in the fruit that our lives produce, in our growth in holiness. In conclusion, I want us to consider just a few ways in which we witness the Holy Spirit's work in our holiness. I'll be brief, but I want us to consider just a few ways in which we witness the Holy Spirit's work in our growth in holiness. Number one, the Holy Spirit's work in our holiness is witnessed in delivering us from the desires of the flesh, as it's quoted here in verse 16. In verse 16, Paul refers to these desires of the flesh. It's easy for us to pass over that. We need to understand we have been delivered from those. So what does that mean? Well, since our flesh has been crucified, remember that verb was past tense, because these have been crucified, the Holy Spirit turns our desires from the things of the flesh to the things of the Spirit. Now think about this with me. That helps us understand why when we are tempted, we know that it is our true desire ultimately to grow in godliness. This doesn't mean that the desires of our sinful flesh are eliminated. Every one of us knows those desires are still there. Surely the desires of the flesh lurk in the dark recesses of our sinful flesh. But the Holy Spirit leads us away from those dark corners and leads us toward the light. The Holy Spirit directs us to what we rightly want to do. Because you see, that's one of the characteristics between an unbeliever and a true believer. A true believer, though they sin, they don't want to. They truly want to obey God. And when we do this, we build holy habits. Holy habits in our lives. Habits are a great tool of the Holy Spirit. Developing in us these holy habits. Not by self-reliance, but spirit dependence and every virtue we possess and every victory won and every thought of holiness are his alone number two the holy spirit's work in our holiness is witnessed in our obedience to the gospel 
The Holy Spirit's work in our holiness is witness in our obedience to the gospel. Look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, Paul explains, you are not under the law. Now some misinterpret this passage and try to pit law against gospel. And that's not the case here. In fact, Scripture is quite clear. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says the law is holy and righteous and good. It is the standard of perfection. It is the standard of perfect obedience. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us, right? Because we cannot obey it perfectly. No one can obey the law perfectly, except for he who did. The Lord Jesus Christ obeyed the law to perfection. That's why we look to him For in the greatest exchange of history, we read these words. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God, which we receive through faith. And it is God's Spirit who does this work. The Shorter Catechism says that the Holy Spirit does this by convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds to the knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills, and through the Spirit we are persuaded, we are even enabled to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. And thirdly and lastly, the Holy Spirit's work in our holiness is witnessed in enabling and empowering us to... Keep in step with the Spirit. He enables it. He empowers it. He keeps us in line by His lead. And He does this typically through objective means. Our shorter catechism explains it this way. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the Word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which we are made are made effectual to the elect for salvation. And so the Holy Spirit speaks through the word He authored, not apart from it. The Holy Spirit works and speaks through His Word. And this includes the visual word, the visual word of baptism and the Lord's Supper, both of which we see. The gospel preached. And the Holy Spirit leads us as we are faithful to pray. Because He not only enables us to pray, He works through our prayers. Which is pretty amazing to think about. We keep in step then through the ordinary means of grace. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, let us learn to pray as I echo the words of Robert Murray McShane, Lord, make me as holy as it is possible for a saved sinner to be. That's a worthy prayer to pray, since the goal of our election is holiness. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you that in Christ Jesus we are positionally holy through faith in Him. We thank You for His perfect life. We thank You for His sacrificial death. We thank You for His victorious resurrection. And all of this You work and through in our redemption. 
We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is at work in our lives, even in this very moment. We thank you that he indeed shall have the victory in us as one day we will be holy as our Lord Jesus is practically. We thank you for this and pray that you would be glorified through us, through our lives, through your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org. Thank you.